0: John Calvin wrote that if we mean by free will that fallen mankind has the ability to choose what it wants, then of course fallen humanity has free will. If we mean that mankind in a fallen state, which is dead in our trespasses and sins, has the moral power and ability to choose righteousness, then said Calvin, free will is far too grandois a term to apply to fallen humanity. Hi, and welcome to One Little Candle, a place where genuine believers are encouraged, empowered, and inspired to be the light that God calls us to be by contending for the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his people so that we may pass down undefiled the truth of God's infallible word to the next generation. And in case you're thinking that you can't make a difference in your own little corner of the world, Yes, you can, because all it takes is one little candle. I'm your host, Rebecca Bershwinger. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hi, and welcome to part three of Who Chose Who? God's Amazing Grace. This is the third and final part in this series on the challenging and oftentimes controversial doctrine of sovereign election or predestination, or as some refer to it as Calvinism. In the first part, I shared with you my testimony and how I came to embrace the doctrine of God's sovereign election, a doctrine that I fought, that I despised completely and rejected for years because it was just too incredible a thought to think that God would, in fact, choose some over, over others. I looked at it through my fleshly eyes, and I spent several years of my Christian walk not really taking it before God and allowing Him to speak to me on the issue by setting aside my presuppositions and just coming to Him in faith for His truth. And albeit difficult truths, but also very illuminating and freeing truths in this doctrine. In part two, I shared with you some of my objections and how they were scripturally answered. And in part three here as well, you're going to hear a few more of those objections addressed. And then at the end, I would direct you once again to some wonderful resources so that you can, hopefully, I've encouraged you enough and inspired you enough to want to dive into this subject further for yourself if you are in fact on the other side of the fence, or as some people call it, an Arminius. One who believes that uh, my salvation was basically left in my hands. It was up to me to decide without God having to revive me or regenerate me first out of the deadness of my sins in order for me to even begin to have faith. And I would like to start out by sharing this. This is a prayer written by Charles Spurgeon, and it's called An Arminian Prayer. And of course, it's nothing anyone would consciously pray, but he wrote this prayer to go along with the theology of someone who does not believe in sovereign election. And based on the beliefs that one would have to embrace in order to embrace Arminianism or in opposition to predestination this is what the prayer would sound like and it's titled in armenian prayer based upon their theology by charles spurgeon and it goes like this lord i thank thee i am not like those presumptuous calvinists lord i was born with a glorious free will i was born with power by which i can turn to thee of myself i have improved my grace If everybody had done the same with their grace that I have, they might all have been saved. Thou gavest grace to everybody. Some do not improve, but I do. There are many who will go to hell as much bought with the blood of Christ as I was. They had as much of the Holy Ghost given to them. They had a good chance and were as much blessed as I am. It was not thy grace that made us to differ. I know it did a great deal. Still, I turned the point. I made use of what was given me and others did not. This is the difference between me and them. And this prayer was taken from one of um, Charles Spurgeon's sermons. It's sermon number 52. And that was called Free Will a Slave. Again, this is obviously something a true Christian would never pray, whether you're an Arminian or Calvinist but again it's based on our theology and and if we embrace that theology isn't this where that prayer might ultimately lead just a little something to think about as you listen to this this episode i really pray that this episode touches upon your heart and i pray that you go forth in faith and trust in god to be a true truth seeker one that's willing to set everything aside be open to something maybe that you didn't understand or agree with before. I know it's difficult. I know it really provokes the flesh in us, but there are a lot of things in God's word, I think, that that can do that. But it's certainly no reason to reject them because it evokes a, a strong emotion in us one way or another. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for walking with me through this series. And if you have any questions or comments, you can always hop on Facebook and go to Candles Together and share your thoughts, share your experience, or even a testimony that you may have in in regard to this or even any questions. So enjoy part three of Who Chose Who? God's Amazing Grace. 1 John 5.1 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Dr. John Piper says, a literal translation reads this, everyone who goes on believing that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Faith is the evidence of regeneration. Faith isn't the cause of it. Remember, faith is a gift from God. Faith and repentance are made possible through the regenerating work of God. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is the gift of God not by works so that no one could boast and we have Philippians 129 for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy 2 verses 24 through 26 And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And Acts chapter 18, verse 27 says, When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, I don't know the name of the city there, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. Grace, unmerited favor from God, right? You know, the men that were most used by God in the cause of evangelism in the history of the church, they were passionate believers in God's sovereign grace in God's sovereign election. Paul, Jesus Christ himself, they taught it. The belief in sovereign election, predestination, has really helped the cause of mission's work. It hasn't hurt it. That's a lie, that people won't be compelled to preach the gospel when they believe that. That's not true. It's just the opposite, in fact. As George Whitefield said, Man hath a free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven, till God worketh in him to will and to do his good pleasure. Charles Spurgeon said, free will carried many a soul to hell, but never a soul to heaven. So yes, the greatest evangelists and missionaries of the Protestant era, they've been Calvinistic or or Reformed. Um, They've embraced and they've taught the doctrines of grace. I know we hear free will, free will all the time when it comes to the doctrine of election. But the Bible's clear on what we choose in our free will. I mean, don't we choose according to our inclinations? Our strongest inclinations are to please the flesh, for the world, anti-God. John Calvin wrote that if we mean by free will that fallen mankind has the ability to choose what it wants, then of course fallen humanity has free will. If we mean that mankind in a fallen state, which is dead in our trespasses and sins, has the moral power and ability to choose righteousness, then said Calvin... Free will is far too grandois a term to apply to fallen humanity. Human will is free to follow personal inclinations, but fallen inclinations are always directed away from God. And again, that brings us back to Romans 3.11 and chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. And here's Romans 3.11 again real quick. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And Romans 8, 7, and 8, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Before conversion, could I have willed to love God on my own? What about you? What inclined your will toward God? Who should the credit for your salvation be given to, you or God? Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up the last day. Notice Jesus said, no one can come to me. Not that some can't, but no one. And Jesus didn't say no one may come to me. He said, no one can come to me. No one is able unless the father. Let's look at that word draw. Some say it means to woo or entice someone, but let's look at James chapter two, verse six, where we read, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? And in Acts chapter 16, verse 19, we find they dragged them into the marketplace. Do you know that the same Greek word is used in all three of those verses and they're translated as draw in John six forty four, dragging in James 2, 6 and dragged in Acts sixteen nineteen. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags them to me. (laughs) Um, There's no enticement there. We're dead in our sins. We're depraved. God has to drag us to himself. I had read somewhere um, that an example is drawing water from a well, right? You don't entice the water to come up and leave the well. You have to force it against gravity to come up. You have to draw it up. The Holy Spirit makes us willing to come. Another big objection of mine was all, that word all, and the word world in the Bible. And again, I just always took it for face value. Didn't do my study. Didn't do my homework. John 12, 32. Jesus said, and if I am lifted up from the earth, talking about his crucifixion, will draw all men to myself. Now, if face value, we take that as referring to every last person on the planet, right? But what's the context? See, context is key here. What's the context in which we find this phrase? Because today we use the words all, all the time. Okay, well, <laughs> I don't use the word all, all the time, but see what I mean? Let's look at the reality. We're all men. Drawn to God? Drawn to Jesus after his crucifixion? No. All men were not drawn to God. All men will never be drawn to God, will they? That is not talking about every last person on the earth. See, the context of this was this. In John 12, in that verse I just shared with you, Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jews were coming to Jesus and they were believing in him. Because let's, let's back up to John chapter 12, verses 20 and 22, that says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. So now Jesus is being sought after by non-Jews, by the Gentiles. And it's in that context that were led to John 12, 32, where Jesus said, and if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So what do you think he could have meant by that? Well, in this context, wouldn't it be all men referring to Jews and Gentiles, not to every individual person on earth, because we know that's not true. So we can cross that one out. Through his work on the cross, Jesus would draw all kinds of men from every tribe tongue and nation to himself imagine what the jews thought in hearing this how crazy right that outside of the covenant nation now we're talking about people coming to christ because again not everyone is drawn to the cross as a matter of fact the bible says that the cross is foolishness to gentiles and a stumbling block to the jews 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24 says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross of Christ is foolishness to the world, to the unregenerated world. Christ was indicating that when he was lifted up in crucifixion, he would draw all men, Jews and Gentiles, to himself. Because if Jesus was drawing all men to himself, well, then you'd have universalism, which says that all people will be saved. And we know biblically that is just not true. And again, Jesus said in John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The one that's drawn is raised up to eternal life. And the same thing with the world. You know, for God so loved the world, right? John 3, 16. He loved the world, Jews, Gentiles, people, men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The Pharisees also said about Jesus, they said that the whole world goes after him. No, the whole world wasn't going after him and following him much of the world wasn't. If the whole world were going after him, he wouldn't have been crucified, now would he? So we have to be careful with terms like all in the world. We need to dig deeper and look at their context um, and see what they're saying about this. I've heard some people say, so you mean through this doctrine of election, God choosing people, that there are going to be some people who don't want to be chosen, but will be, and some people who want to be chosen, but won't? No. No one after they are regenerated. Let me put it this way. The fact that you want to come to Christ, the fact that you care for and love the things of God, albeit, however, imperfectly while we're on this earth, but the fact that you do, that you're interested in the things of God, that's a sign that you have been chosen your love for God and his commandments. There's not going to be anyone who is truly, who's chosen who is going to be objecting to the things of God, no. In the same instance, there's not going to be people that would want to come to God. Again, the Bible makes it clear, no one seeks after God. So we can scratch that off too. There are not going to be people that wanted to come, but that can't. Only people that across the board wouldn't have come but God said, I'm going to save some for his glory. Which would answer the question to, how do I know I'm one of the elect, right? People want to know that. How do you know if you have that saving faith? Well, the reformers of the 16th century, they described true saving faith as having three parts to it. Number one was content or information. And that concerns information or knowledge of the truth of the gospel, because we need to understand the facts of the gospel, right? Number two was belief. You can understand something, but not believe it. But we need to be able to say, I both understand and I believe the content of the gospel. And then number three is commitment. Commitment to the one who loved us and died for us because you can understand the truths you can believe that they are true but you can pull back or not follow through with the necessary commitment that actually proves that you are one of Christ's followers actually it says that to possess only the first two parts the understanding of the facts of the gospel and believing it that qualifies us to be demons James 2:19 declares you believe that God is one you do well The demons also believe and shudder. They understand and they believe, but there certainly isn't a commitment to Christ, is there? Our works, they don't play a part in our salvation, but they do vindicate our claim to faith before a world that's watching us. They are a sign that we are God's chosen. And remember, in John six thirty seven, Jesus said, all the Father gives me will come to me. Have you come to Christ, my friend? Genuinely come to the God of the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible. Have you repented of your sin? Have you put your trust in Christ? Do you have a love for Christ? And if you can honestly say, yes, I do, and I have, then you've indeed come to Christ. But Scripture's clear, nonetheless, you couldn't have come unless you were already amongst those given by the Father to the Son, John six thirty seven. Because only the elect genuinely come. That's why I use the word genuinely. Only the elect genuinely have a love for Christ. And you wouldn't have any love for Christ if God hadn't done something in you first, a work in your heart. Because again, I can't say it enough by nature, you do not seek God or want him. You don't, I didn't. Yes, you may love him imperfectly, but you love him, right? So when it comes down to it, we feel that after all is said and done, divine election is unfair. That's how I felt. And Paul, when he expounded upon this subject of divine election, sovereign election, God's amazing grace. He predicted that response to sovereign election. I remember reading about Jacob and Esau, and I thought, wow, God, that's harsh. That's not fair. (laughs) that's, That's a verse that I think a lot of people, including me, really struggle with. I had struggled with that previously. Because God chooses some, and others, he doesn't. Esau was one of those whom God did not choose. Paul talks about this in Romans 9. Starting with verse 10, he says, Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand. Not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved. But Esau I hated. Here we see the twins hadn't even been born yet. Their destinies were sealed. God had chosen Jacob over Esau. And as Paul clarifies, it wasn't by works, but it was by him who calls. God who calls, God who draws. They hadn't done anything good or bad. So it wasn't based on their actions or their works. But it says in order that God's purpose and election might stand. Jacob was chosen over Esau because of God's electing call. Yet Esau still responsible for his choices and his sin. And why do we always focus on God's hate for Esau? Because Esau, like you and I, was a sinner by nature, right? Fully deserving of God's wrath children of wrath. He was a child of wrath. But what about focusing on the fact that for no reason in Jacob, God set his love on him the same way he does any of his chosen, his called, his elect. Why did he set his love on you? Why did he set his love on me? But here's where Paul anticipates the response of an objector, that God is unfair, that he's unjust in his choice to have mercy on some, but not all. He says, you're going to say that this election, it's not fair, right? Because God's obligated to show the same kind of mercy to everyone. That was what I definitely thought. The Apostle Paul, remember all the scriptures written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? The Apostle Paul, when he wrote, he said, there's absolutely no injustice on God's part to show mercy to whom he will. God himself, through Paul, is denying any injustice on his part. Like they say, mercy can never be demanded, because then it's not mercy, is it? Mercy is something that's always given at the discretion of the one showing mercy. Someone chooses to show mercy. But Paul says, what shall we say then, in Romans chapter 9, verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. So regarding the issue of God choosing one over another the apostle Paul he's very emphatic that there is no unrighteousness in God there's no injustice in God after all there was no righteousness in us so who says God has to be merciful to us if there's no righteousness in us but it's according to the intention of his will and the praise and the glory of his grace As he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And Paul wraps it up and says, So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Is it the will of man? No, Paul says. Is it the efforts of man? No, says Paul. What's the deciding factor? As Paul says, it is God who has mercy. I don't know what else could possibly, possibly begin to clearly deny the will of man as the powerful position or the final say in whether he is saved or not. It's strong. Paul puts this, his answer, his response in very strong and clear terms. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, says Paul. And then to continue on, he says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? How can God find fault with the non-elect? They can't be responsible for their unbelief, can they? And I know I struggled with the verse about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. But if you really, if you carefully read it, you realize God didn't harden his heart in the beginning. Pharaoh kept hardening his own heart until it came to the point where God just basically gave him up to his, his wickedness and his hardness. And he hardened his heart even further. Pharaoh's heart was never soft to begin with. God didn't force Pharaoh to do anything sinful. Pharaoh acted on the desires of his wicked heart at all times. But Pharaoh, remember, he was formed, he was created and brought into existence to serve God's purposes, not his own. Everything that happened in Egypt was a part of God's plan. Pharaoh was, in fact, chosen for destruction in the Red Sea. But yet, Pharaoh made the choices he made. Remember, God doesn't need to actively put evil in a human being's heart. But if he withholds his mercy or his grace, well, left up to our own evil desires, guess where that's going to get us? And that's what happened to Pharaoh. Paul goes on to say, in answer to, it's not fair, why would God find fault with us then? He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Paul is saying that God is God and man is man, and man has no business telling God what to do with his creation. We are his created, part of his creation, correct? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay, Paul asks, to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use? and another for common use. And Paul's saying, yes, God as the potter has every right to make what he likes from the clay. We can complain all we want about what seems to be our lack of freedom in all this, but God says, what about my freedom as your creator, as the potter? Until, I guess we can count the number of stars in the galaxy or even create the stars and hang them in the sky keep the earth rotating on its axis, create something out of nothing. Who are we to question? Who are we? This is so humbling and hard to wrap our brains around. I understand. Um, but those were my objections that I just shared with you. And those were the answers that I received that I just shared with you. I pray that this has somehow caused you to want to look into this more at the very least to really think about it, to study it, and to lay yourself bare before God and just ask him for his truth no matter what the cost. Because a humble heart, one seeking truth, willing to set aside presuppositions or tradition, God will honor that in a way that is going to totally change you and amaze you just as it did me. I'm so grateful for those nights in my bedroom that I wrestled with God over this. I'm so grateful for what he showed me. And I'm so grateful for him, for my salvation. And you know, the beautiful thing is, is that because of him and through him, that I even know him, that I can claim the name of Christ. That also means that I will never lose my salvation. and That is going to be a different episode. I would like to talk about Salvation Security. Because there are a lot of verses that people use to say, mm, nope, it's possible to fall away from grace, to to lose our salvation. But there are a lot of verses that say, just not so. Very strong and, you know, very clear verses. And I'd like to to share those with you too. A little something here I want you to think about. I'd like you to read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. Again, I will have these on the website. Matthew 13, 34 and 35, and Matthew 13, 10 and 11, where God hid the truth from certain people. What about that and why? How does that tie in here? Read those verses. Because he did. Jesus said he did not want some people to have the truth revealed to them. Again, another another, uh, tough one to, to digest, right? If you stuck by me in this so far, thank you. Thank you so much for being willing to do that. I'm going to leave links to resources for you because um, there's a wonderful a book that I would love for you to get and read if you can. But but you know there's a lot of online information too. Listen to any sermons, Google them. Sermons by John MacArthur on predestination, sovereign election. Vodie Balcom is another wonderful theologian who really expounds upon it wonderfully. R.C. Sproul is another one. Dr. D. James Kennedy, wonderful resources for this. A great resource that explains everything from beginning to end much, much better than I can. It's called Amazing Grace, the History and Theology of Calvinism great, great resource. It's on YouTube. I will provide the link to it in the podcast description as well as on my website. Please check that out and listen to it. I have a song of the week every episode and I provide a link to a great song that will kind of tie things together and further encourage you. And today's song is by Matthew Smith and it's called My Lord I Did Not Choose You. It's on YouTube. I will provide the link in the podcast description as well as on the website. So be that one little candle this week, okay? Be that one little candle by taking the time to bury your soul before the Lord when it comes to this all important doctrine. Have an open heart and an open mind and a humility to be able to set aside your tradition, your way of thinking, and be open to what scripture has to say. It's worth the investment. Shed a lot more light on your salvation. And I believe this doctrine will help you. I believe knowing exactly how you came to Christ will really take that flame of yours and make it brighter. I know that it's going to help you to be an influence in God's kingdom, an influence for righteousness an influence for truth, but you got to be willing to set some things aside if you happen to um, be in the, the opposite camp. Would you do that, Christian? Thanks for listening today. I pray you have a blessed week. You take care, and God bless.